listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Here For You by Angela Purley. Angela is our feature Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, stoke that fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and researcher, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, Steve, I know you're probably, maybe you're too young for this, maybe not. Have you ever seen or read any of those old detective magazines like True Crime Detective? Uh, I knew they existed, but I wasn't really into true crime as a teenager or a young adult, for that matter. I was more into comic books. So America's passion for true crime stories really isn't a new thing. Those magazines, what were they, in their peak era? Oh, yeah. They really kicked off in the 1930s and 40s. By the 1960s, there were some 200 different ones on the market. Some of them lasted into the 1990s. They were really fresh, too. They would scour the country for remarkable crimes, rush out to the scene, and do their own features on them, often before the crimes were even resolved. I guess it begs to be asked, are they still around? Yeah, most of them, maybe all of them, are gone. I I think websites, blogs, and certainly podcasts fill that void now. But I'm bringing them up because tonight's case was intriguing enough that it lured one of the detective magazines to town back in 1970. True detective magazine? I, you know, I don't know. Someone put the text of the story up on the internet, but noted the cover had been destroyed and they couldn't tell which magazine it was. So we, we don't know exactly which one. But we know the headline and it asked the question, why put the bachelor in the well? Ugh, stories and bodies and wells, they creep me out. That's like horror movie stuff. Yeah, definitely unsettling. So, as you like to say, throw another log on the fire and settle back. We're going to go to January of 1970 on the outskirts of the small community of Clarington, Ohio. Fewer than 400 people lived there. It's on the eastern border of Monroe County, right across the river from West Virginia. Clarington once had a robust shipbuilding industry, but that was long gone. What never changed, however, was its scenic topography, including forested hills, windswept farmland, and a natural feature that locals call Beautiful Ridge. Clyde Dierkes was born and raised there, fishing in the Ohio River, hunting in the woods, swimming in Possum Creek. He became a coal miner and a steel worker, and he never married. In 1970, He was a retired 65-year-old bachelor, but he wasn't a hermit. He knew everyone, thanks to his post-retirement avocation as a general handyman. Need a roof fixed? A porch swing hung? A door replaced? Clyde was your man. There was one problem, however. As a handyman, Dierkes was often home alone with the ladies of the house, and on occasion, an absent husband would worry about that. Many would defend Dierkes, saying his friendliness could be misunderstood. But even with him all of 65 years old and dressed in bib overalls, plenty of people still thought of him as a Casanova. 
January 25 that year, it was a frigid Sunday that left a layer of frost on the hills. At Clyde's home on Beautiful Ridge, he prepared himself breakfast, then headed for his van. He always drove to Clarington to pick up a Sunday newspaper. Sometimes he'd drive by neighbors' homes to see if anyone had odd jobs waiting to be done. His pet beagle-hound Boozer jumped in the van with him. Clyde waved to neighbors as he drove down the hill toward town. He stopped at a service station to purchase wiper blades. A childhood friend who owned a small country store watched Clyde pass by. Monroe County Sheriff Francis Salzberger knew Clyde well. In an interview with that detective magazine, he called Clyde a good man, much too good of a man for the future that awaited him. Salzberger was a dedicated sheriff, known for his creative methods. He once earned an award as Ohio Sheriff of the Year. Some folks called him the Great Impersonator for the way he would go undercover himself to crack cases. He once disguised himself as a hobo to collect info on a vice ring operating out of Clarington. Another time, he grew a beard and frequented a place that a suspected burglar was known to haunt. He got enough evidence to convict him. Sheriff Salzburg, however, was not out and about on that cold January day. He was home with the flu. He burrowed under the covers, hoping everything would stay quiet that day. And it did, till about 7 p.m. The sheriff's phone rang. A woman named Ella Bonar from Clarington was on the other end, clearly worried. She'd been calling her uncle Clyde Dierkes, but he wouldn't answer. She called his neighbors, and they confirmed his lights were on, and his van was in the drive. But strangely, Clyde's dog was on the porch, howling. The sheriff knew that wasn't right. If Clyde had gone out to run errands, he would have taken Boozer with him. If he hadn't gone out, he certainly wouldn't have left his best friend howling on the porch. The sheriff called one of his deputies, Junior Miller. Get down to Clarington and see what's going on, Salzburg told him. As Salzburger waited for the deputy to report back, his phone rang a second time. He snatched it up. The voice on the other end was low, an obvious attempt not to be identified. I think you'd better get down to Clarington. Clyde Dierkes is in trouble, the caller said. The sheriff tried to keep the caller on the line, complaining about a bad connection and asking questions, but the line went dead. Salzberger pulled on his overcoat, heavy boots, and wrapped a scarf around his neck. Flu or not, he knew he had to check it out. As he drove 16 miles from Woodsfield to Clarington, Salzberger admitted his mind went to the rumors he'd heard, those veiled accusations about love affairs involving Dierkes and some of Monroe County's lonely housewives. He grabbed his two-way radio and called the three deputies he hadn't spoke with yet that night. Meet me at Clyde Dierkes's home on Beautiful Ridge, he said. We may have trouble on our hands. But before any of them made it to Clyde's house, Deputy Miller was on the radio with his report. He was on the ridge. The lights in the house were on. The dog was at the front door, still howling. And a crowd of neighbors had begun to gather. Word traveled fast in the tiny community. 
Miller said he was holding the townspeople back and trying to preserve any footprints. Upon arriving at the front gate to the farmhouse, Sheriff Solzberger recognized one of Clyde's neighbors, Jim Farrell. Had he seen Clyde? Farrell said, yeah, around supper time. He saw Clyde arrive home in his van, and it was an hour after that that Boozer began howling. As the sheriff quizzed others in the crowd, the three other deputies arrived, Headley, Keeler, and Jones. Then all four advanced to the house, petting the excited dog, then reaching for the doorknob. It was unlocked. They called out for Clyde and got no answer. They moved room by room through the one-story frame house. Nothing was amiss. Likewise, a search of Clyde's van and his pickup truck failed to give any clues as to his whereabouts. By now, a dusting of snow had covered whatever footprints might have been visible, so Sheriff Salzberger decided to use the help that was available. He turned the curious neighbors into a search team and fanned them out to cover the farm. The effort produced no clues, no evidence, no leads. As the lawmen later huddled away from prying ears, one of the deputies voiced the very thing that had occupied Sheriff Solzberger on his way to the ridge. What about those stories which had been floating around for the past few months about Clyde Dierkes making a play for some of the ladies in town, he asked. Solzberger shrugged. I think people are always ready to believe the worst about others, he said. But sure, whether it was true or not, it was a motive. The sheriff was tight-lipped to the press as he and his deputies pursued that idea. He acknowledged to reporters that Clyde's disappearance could be foul play. Then a tip led him to make a mysterious call to Southgate, Michigan. He talked to Monroe County Prosecutor George Burkhart, filled his car with gas, and headed out of town. The sheriff had a suspect in mind. When Sulzberger returned to town on January 27th, he made an announcement. Clyde Dierkes was dead, and two men had been arrested for it. Harold Stewart, a 41-year-old factory worker living on Route 1 in Clarington, and his 25-year-old nephew Floyd Stewart, who lived in Southgate, Michigan. The one thing authorities didn't have was a body. 24 hours after that announcement, they did. That Wednesday morning, Sheriff Salzberger led a small group of men, including newspaper reporters, Prosecutor Burkhart, Coroner Donald Pyatt, and one of the two suspects, Floyd Stewart, along the top of Beautiful Ridge. Three miles from Clyde's home, they paraded down a desolate, snow-covered path to an abandoned farm that had once been owned by Harold Stewart. They reached an unused well covered by a wooden frame that was sagging with age. Visible on the ground was a wallet, Clyde's wallet, and a windshield ice scraper. Deputies removed the wooden cover and shined lights into the 50-foot-deep void. The sheriff put a length of rope around himself and was lowered into the gloom. The sheriff spent a solid half hour in the well before they pulled him back up. Clyde Dierkes is down there, the sheriff said, in ten feet of water. I've got a rope on him. Let's pull him up.
At noon, Clyde was lifted from his watery tomb, then placed on the ground next to the well. Dr. Pyatt noted a bullet wound to Clyde's left chest and a severe wound on the back of his head, suggesting he had been bludgeoned. Clyde's pocket watch and wrist watch were both stopped at 7.25 p.m., presumably the moment he'd been submersed in water. An autopsy would determine Clyde likely survived the gun blast to the left chest, and that more likely he died from the blows to his head. Floyd Stewart then led authorities five miles from Clarington to a spot along the Ohio River where he said the murder weapon, a twenty-two caliber rifle, had been discarded. An intensive search was launched, but no weapon was ever recovered. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Harold Stewart was charged with murder, and Floyd was charged with aiding and abetting. They were arraigned in the Woodsfield courtroom of Judge Vincent Ballard, and both pled not guilty. Salzberger shared his thoughts on a possible motive— Clyde's attention to Harold Stewart's estranged wife, June. June, who was 39, had known Clyde most of her life. June used to care for Clyde's mom. And in recent years, Clyde had done odd jobs for her when Harold wasn't around. June insisted their relationship was an innocent one. Harold Stewart didn't believe it and had confronted them both about it. This led to a long-running feud between the two men and the eventual separation of the Stewarts. That July, Harold Stewart went on trial for the murder of Clyde. The state relied heavily on the testimony of his nephew Floyd, who said his uncle offered him money to kill the older man, first $500, then $1,000, then $1,500. Floyd said he didn't take his uncle seriously. But that same weekend, uncle and nephew were driving around when Clyde passed them in his truck. At Harold's order, Floyd turned his car around and followed him. They pulled into Clyde's drive after him, and Floyd got out and approached Clyde under the pretense of asking if he still shooed horses. Clyde said he was too old to do that anymore. Floyd then asked if he could use Clyde's phone. Clyde said, sure. In the house, Floyd pretended to dial a number, but didn't, then returned to the car. Floyd wanted to leave, but Harold stopped him and told him, just wait. A few minutes later, sure enough, Clyde came out of the house, probably to see why his visitors weren't going anywhere. And when he got close, Harold, according to Floyd, produced the rifle and shot him twice. 
Floyd said the two men then put Clyde's body in the trunk of the car, drove down Beautiful Ridge onto Route 7, then up to Sykes Ridge to the well. Floyd said when they opened the trunk, Harold reached in and struck Clyde in the head several times. After they tossed him down the well, they drove to the river where Floyd said he threw the trunk mat and other items into the water. Harold Stewart's defense attorney, Alan Sherry, tried to throw doubt into Floyd's testimony, noting how he had initially told police Harold shot Clyde eight times. He had just given testimony that it was two times, but in truth, Clyde had been shot once. Sherry asked the nephew why he would follow his uncle's orders, since the younger man was probably 200 pounds and his uncle was maybe 130 pounds and suffering from an illness. Floyd said Harold threatened to harm his children by saying things like, them's beautiful, healthy kids, bud, let's try to keep them that way. There were another dozen witnesses for the state, Floyd's wife testified seeing her husband clean out the trunk. Harold's own son testified that Floyd told him his father had tried to hire him to kill a man. Sheriff Salzberger testified that he followed Floyd's directions to the river, a thousand yards from Possum Creek Bridge, and discovered some items, including the mat that had been in the trunk of Floyd's car. Then it was the defense's turn. Defense attorney Sherry brought up several witnesses. One was Floyd's sister, who said her brother was eating pie and drinking coffee with her at the alleged time of Clyde's death. Attorney Sherry also used several witnesses to paint a picture of Harold Stewart as an unwell man who was in the midst of a three-month sick leave from work on prescriptions for depression and anxiety and couldn't walk stairs without assistance. Then Harold Stewart took the stand himself. He and his wife, June, had four children. He acknowledged that he didn't get along with Clyde, mostly because his wife was always chasing after him, he said. Harold and June had separated in September. That was about four months before Clyde's murder, and they had worked out a custody agreement for the two underage children. As to the night Clyde was killed, Harold told a story of how he and Floyd were driving when the car they were in became disabled. He walked to his sister's house. Floyd said he'd meet him there later. When Floyd didn't show up, Harold said he called his house to see if anyone had seen Floyd. Harold said his son finally answered and told him there was trouble. Harold said he hurried home and found Floyd and his wife were there. They said goodbye and left quickly. And Harold said his son wouldn't tell him what was going on. He figured his two older sons had gotten into a fight, and he just let it go. Harold's testimony seemed to be pointing the finger at Floyd as the killer. In the end, it was a case of he said, he said, The jury had to decide which man was responsible, for it surely seemed like one of them was. But they clearly didn't think there was enough evidence to choose. They deliberated for just six hours before finding Harold Stewart innocent of the charges. 
Well, I guess both sounded convincing. The jury didn't really have a choice, though. I mean, since Harold's own son seemed to be testifying against him, that might have been worth some points. But you're right. If you don't know beyond reasonable doubt, you don't want to put the wrong guy in jail. And after Harold Stewart was found not guilty, it's not like the prosecutor can take a shot at Floyd. I mean, he'd have to reverse his entire argument. Oh, I bet DNA technology would have solved this one, especially if they had that bloody mat from the trunk. Not to mention testing the inside of the trunk. And maybe they're close? Yeah, it certainly would have helped. And that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Now, more about our featured Ohio musical artist of the night. Angela Purley from Columbus has spent the past decade on stage and on the road, creating her own cosmic swirl of alt-country, psychedelic rock, and amplified Americana along the way. They even love her in Europe, where her debut album, Hey Kid, peaked at number six on the Euro-Americana chart. Her newest song, Here For You, is a kind of pick-me-up song about finding love, adventure, and support through weird times. Now, if you're in the Columbus area, you can go see Angela perform in person November 24 at Natalie's Grandview. That's in Columbus for their second anniversary party. And you can keep up on all her projects as they happen, as well as any future performance dates, at her website, AngelaPurley.com. So here's the full version of Hair For You by Angela Purley. Turn up the volume, enjoy, and we'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.